This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. So now, uh, Dr. Mark Westfall, we always, of course, talk about interesting, uh, informative educational topics, and I, this one is so interested in this, uh, trauma, right? That's the that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, psychological trauma okay. um, and effect on the brain. And, you know, I was, <clears throat> I do a lot of work with trauma, and then uh, I was, I, I ride bikes a fair amount, and I was riding with a, a riding buddy of mine, and he's a paramedic, and, um, and talking about all the things that that, it, that they come across in the course of their work and um, it reminded me of some work I had done in the past <clears throat> back after Katrina mm. uh, you know then we had the the tornadoes that came through okay um, when the tornadoes came through there was a lot of trauma obviously and a lot of psychological trauma and I called my a buddy of mine is a psychiatrist in New Orleans and he was head of the uh, uh, ambulance um, main ambulance company in New Orleans, and he was down in the Superdome during Katrina, mm, yeah. in the in the midst of it. And he was managing; he's the, like the medical director of the entire, you know, um, EMS down there. And I said, you know, I feel like I should do something to help. You know, I'm not sure what to do to help. You know, take our services. And he said, oh, I'll tell you what you should do. He said, you need to uh, go service the first responders. You know, everybody thinks about the victims, which obviously you do. He said, nobody's thinking about the first responders, and they are in the middle of it, mm-hmm. and they're seeing all the, this trauma, and they come back to the station, and they just kind of stuff it off sometimes, and, and no one's dealing with how it's affecting them. Yeah. It was awesome advice. I went and did talks at uh, various fire stations around and uh, did a couple of classes uh, in their training on psychological first aid which we'll get to down the road, but it was really eye-opening to me. I had not, I didn't even think about it, and um, it was a really great experience. So then when I was talking to my buddy, Steve Hicks, who's a paramedic here in, in the area, um, I just thought it'd be great to get him on the show and, and talk about what it is uh, to be a day in the life of, uh, you know, a first responder. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so I've got Steve Hicks. He's here going to join us. Steve, welcome. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you, all Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, First of all, you know your job's like the one. It's like the job that when you ask kids, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" Like right, it, when they're kids, when they're kids. <laughs> they turn eighteen, it's like I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't know though, but I mean, still to me, I think it's just such an interesting thing. And uh, anyone I know, I do have a couple of friends who are paramedics and firefighters. And I, I, every time I'm with them, I want to just like, ooh, don't yeah, tell really, me about yeah, that. Yeah, and like, so what's the politically correct way to refer to you? Is it, are you paramedic, firefighter, fireman, or just a badass? <laughs> I mean, yeah. what is the correct terminology? Firefighter. We have women in the fire service now, so you can't see fireman anymore, which that's right. It's, yeah. it's sure. firefighter. Firefighter. But you're, on, but you're on a fire truck as opposed to the smaller, what you think well, of as the Well, there's or no difference. big misunderstanding with that or just – you know, just it's not clear to the public how the fire service works yeah. and versus an ambulance service. Right. I work for one of the over-the-mountain cities fire departments, and if you want me to get into that, I will briefly. Like yeah, how so that yeah, works. What is, what is the difference? Yeah. Fire department, and our department is basically about 75% paramedics. Um, you don't get on with the fire department these days pretty much unless you're a paramedic because that's 75% of the calls roughly or medical calls how about not that? Fi- yeah not fire right. related calls but for the most part medical, medical calls emergency type er kind of stuff yes and then your schedule you work is what 
24 on, 48 off. Every third day, it never changes. It, if I work Monday, I work Thursday. And, and I work Sunday, and it rotates every three weeks. Huh. So that 24 starts at what time of the day? 7 a.m. to 7 a.m. And you can go to bed? When do you sleep? And that, that's another good question because, you know, there's running jokes out there. Oh, you work with the fire department. Oh, you sleep all day. You wash your car. Well, no. That's not the way You it pet works. the Dalmatian. We, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the pole. And all. That's right, yeah. You know, we have daily duties. We <laughs> teach CPR classes. We you go do. to schools. We do inspections. Yeah. And then during all that, we're running calls. So it's, you know, if we get to sleep all night, great. Um, that's 50-50. We when you go able. out on calls, are you going out on large trucks or on the smaller, what m- look more like? The I way mean, most of the departments work, you yeah. have a fire engine and you have a rescue or a, a, a rescue-type ambulance. And if a 911 call comes in, a, a medical, we all go because if you have a major medical incident, you can't just deal with it with two men, right. two people, two firefighters. You've got to have others. If it's a large person or somebody on the third floor or somebody that's in a ditch, right? that's why the fire service has taken, you know, in, in the cities has taken over EMS as well, and that hap- that goes back to the seventies. Gotcha. So b- both vehicles go on every both call. Both go, and if you, yeah. then if you get a fire call in the middle of an EMS call, other the other stations back to back help out. We're going to get to the important stuff, but I do want to ask you about this quickly. Um, when I had my first child, this would have been now you know eight years ago or longer. Uh, you have to go to the fire station to figure out how to put the baby seat in the car seat, and I just yeah. the car seat, and I <laughs> thought. Really? Okay. Yep. All right. Well, great. Let's do it. Um, and we went. And, of course, I just felt like a big buffoon once you get there because it's pretty self-explanatory, the whole deal, right? Like, you, you plug To you, some degree. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And, there, of course, you want to, to get things a certain, uh, you know, tightness and all this. But I do now every time I go by the fire station because I live by one. And it, every day there's someone yeah. getting a car seat put in. I'm always like... I can show you how to do it. <laughs> you know, the, the old <laughs> but adage. But I understand yeah. how important it is. I really do. Yeah. Does it drive you crazy, though? No, the old that. adage, you know, you're a jack of all trades, a master of one. No, right. Right. Well, yeah. we're, we're kind of like a jack of all trades, a master of a handful. Yeah. Everything's been laid in the fire services, you know, hazmat, you know, rescue, technical rescue, swift water, structural collapse, EMS. It's just one thing after yeah, there's in car seats. And so. it is interesting to think about because I guess the safer a lot, of, you know, uh, the more we learn about how to build homes properly and electrical systems, I suppose, I would guess maybe there are fewer and fewer fires over time. But, of course, we wind up with all these other kinds of problems. That, no, that's, that's a good point yeah. with with technology. Yeah. It's, it's somewhat safer. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. All right, so let's talk about, um, you know, parts of the job that – you know, people don't act, usually talk about, which is responding to pretty traumatic events, which, I mean, even though you're over the mountain community, like I have a buddy who's a Inslee firefighter and he's like, dude, it's exhausting. It just never stops. And I think they're the number one, like most whatever, you know, they have the most calls per, called upon. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, you, you respond to some, some pretty crazy stuff. Absolutely. Uh, well, like how, what's the, I, how do you want to start this as far yeah, as, I mean, so what are some of the, and you, you don't have to go into detail, I mean, it's up to you, but what are some of the difficult calls you've been on, and how do you guys handle it? I mean, uh, you know, I've before I worked at the department I'm at now, I worked at some smaller departments in the more rural areas that it's not as staffed as well, and it's a different kind of community, and you run a lot of stuff. 
Even, but even in the over the mountain communities, you still run a lot of stuff. Heroin, for example, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's everywhere, and I, I see it. But some of the things that that, and I've used this term before. It's like you call them riders. They stick in the back of your mind because it's like from mm-hmm. twenty years ago, a call that's still in the back of your mind, where a hundred others you don't even think twice about. Yeah, um, you wake up at. 2 a.m. with a loud noise and, and it's calling your units to whatever the call is and you wake up from a dead sleep and you get there and there's lights flashing, your own lights, the police are there, their lights are flashing and a car's into a tree or another car and you're in there cutting someone out and it might take 20 minutes and it's traumatic and next thing you know you transport them to the hospital and you turn them over to the emergency room and 30 minutes later you're back at the station and you get in bed and it's like did that just happen you're spending a fair amount of your time stepping into the worst moments of people's lives i suppose which is an interesting and i think we, a lot of us take that for granted you know every time totally, i went totally. and saw dunkirk recently and i and i thought about like good gravy you know i'm just living a like a totally sheltered life where for the most part the worst thing that happens to me is like i bite my lip and think oh crap <laughs> now for three days i'm gonna bite my lip <laughs> But meanwhile, I mean, you know, that's it's an interesting thing to think about what kind of mental strength and, and what kind of coping mechanisms you would have to come up with, like you said, to to prevent every traumatic call from becoming a rider, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just you get back in bed and you look up at the ceiling and think, did that really just happen? And you're just supposed to go back to sleep? Right. And you may or you may not. <laughs> what was your training process to, like, that's when you started? Great question. How I mean, they had to prepare you for this before. No, do they? Not really. Really? They talk about, you know, the stages of grief, the stages of dying and stuff like that, but, and briefly touch on how to cope. Yeah. Uh, my part-time is I teach in the paramedic program at Herzing University, and we have, you know, a couple of chapters and a couple of nights where you do deal with it but or teach about it, but not to this degree or what Mark mm-hmm. could. Do you see people who just can't handle it and just does that happen is there is there burnout for some people pretty quickly you you may think it or suspect it but it's really hard to tell because you know it's a bunch of it's a lot of testosterone Hmm. you don't want to show your weakness the type of person that goes into that type of work i mean you guys out there can't see uh steve Steve's a good-looking, strapping mm-hmm. gentleman. Are you describing yeah. me or Steve? <laughs> Steve. Steve. <laughs> He's, he said good-looking and strapping. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the type of guy that goes into that typically does have a lot of testosterone, so to speak, um, and, you know, is in it for a lot of the right reasons. Um, but there also you have to be – it's a very physical job. You have to pass physical tests. You have to go – and you have competitions on, you know, carrying all mm-hmm. the luggage – all the um, – weight you have to carry and whatnot and so it is a very physically demanding job so you get people who are very physically fit and, and very much a lot of bravado um and so my experience briefly after the tornado was going to, around to some of these places was it you know there's a lot of joking that goes on there's a lot of uh you know uh just he-man stuff right and you could tell that there was a really close bond with these people um, but 
they weren't they, they wouldn't show you the touchy feely side as much now is that inaccurate right. absolutely that, uh, that's what i'm referring to as testosterone because nobody's going to show their weakness you know because of in my line of work if, if you show a weakness you better believe the other ones are going to just wear you out in a fun mm-hmm. in a fun way that's mm-hmm. just the fire service Let's take a quick pause. Sure. Uh, just a 30-second pause, so thank good people. And when we come back, I want to talk about some of the more traumatic calls that you've had to respond to and kind of help how you've dealt with that. Um, we're hanging out tonight talking about traumatic situations, uh, how you deal with that um, with the brain. And, of course, we have Steve Hicks here. He is a paramedic slash firefighter in one of the over-the-mountain communities. And, um, and this is just so interesting because – you just rarely get to sit down and pick somebody's brain that works in this field. And I wanted to ask you about some of the more traumatic calls that you've responded to. And I mean, what is it? Because it, you think car wreck initially in my mind, uh, because that is, you know, not only death can be involved in very stressful situations, but also like physical trauma. But what, what, what is, what's your take on that? You know, one of the ones that comes to my mind immediately was early in my career on I can't even remember if it was Christmas Eve or a couple of days prior to Christmas Eve. It was, but anyway, it was a, a beautiful home, very expensive, probably 8 or 9 p.m., and it was a big Christmas party, and we get a call to a gunshot wound, and basically it was a suicide no. in the home on during a Christmas party, no. and then we have to parade in there and do what we're trained to do and bring the person out and treat the person in front of everybody there and that's one of those that really sticks out in my mind among others but um is it do you find that that memory is triggered at times by christmas you know fortunately knock on wood i've i don't feel like i've ever had an issue dealing with it It just one of those things that just pops up Mm -hmm. maybe not at christmas it's just just pops up yeah among others many others but um, nothing really triggers it around the holidays, I don't yeah. think, fortunately. You know, it's interesting because I know, like, my line, I'm a teacher, and that my job has really changed the way I see the world, you know, interacting with young people and getting to better understand them. And I'm curious, do you feel like these kinds of experiences that you are forced to have, do they do they lessen your quality of life, or are there ways in which it makes you better appreciate um sort of being healthy and alive i lean more towards that as far as it's i guess it makes me appreciate things more i don't i don't really dwell on that stuff i think everybody in our line of work deals with it differently but i don't really ever sense something a call dragging somebody down um maybe a few calls with children but then there's a lot of them that have been successful a drowning Mm. that we ran on a two-year-old and got the child back it was a five-minute story but those you know there's a lot of successful stories that give you you know and once again that's an opportunity most people don't ever have is to literally save Save lives yeah and and to do that more than once you know that that's a that's a pretty big deal yeah no i've had some patients who are first responders that have you know struggled and i think um you know like we were talking earlier I think a lot of times their coworkers don't know, and they really try to keep it to themselves. Mm-hmm. And when they're struggling with uh, PTSD or uh, flashbacks, nightmares, or if it's depression or anxiety, um, you know, again, it's not something that they feel, um, you know, 
to something they should display at work. And so they really push it down and, and deal with it outside of work. Steve, do you guys talk about it? Like if you guys go on a traumatic call when you get back to the station and you're hanging out playing with a Dalmatian, do you guys talk about it at that point? Or? Yeah. Um, to some degree, if we all together, as I mentioned earlier, that an engine goes and a rescue goes and we treat the patient, then our rescue guys transport we may at times send an additional personnel in because of the nature of the call. And then if it's something traumatic, we kind of, the ones that go back to the station, wait for them to get back to get an update to find out, well, hey, what happened? You know, did So person... you do get updates? And... Oh, yeah. From okay. what, because, you know, it took an additional 10 minutes to get to the hospital. They turn them over to the emergency room and they hang around to see maybe what happens. And you know, usually we wait and say, hey, what happened? And we talk about it and we have our own ways of, kind of dealing or coping with it not not by any means joking but just it's like well that's a shame kind of thing i hate that happened but hey we did this we did that yeah it's just you have your own way of dealing with it i wonder if you've ever found that your perspective professionally has helped you to help others either in other parts of your life or when you are on the scene of a traumatic event and there are people who were not injured but are there and are traumatized have you found yourself better able to help them because of the experiences you've had? To maybe to I kind of think I'll see what you're saying. In my role now, I'm more of I stand back and observe the scene and yeah. make sure that everything's safe for the others treating the patient. And then you've got bystanders or loved ones or family members in shock right? or just is this really happening? And sometimes in my role now, that's my position is to – at least address the family members and remove them from the scene so to speak and give them somewhat not false sense of hope right just tell them we're doing doing what we can and because that it that's that's got to be tough yeah and that's a that's a great question and that's exactly what um when i was when i lectured or discussed with the uh, with the different fire stations and I gave some classes at Herzing too was psychological first aid mm-hmm. and so it became pretty clear to me early that most of the firefighters weren't going to reveal any trauma that they were experiencing and so instead of trying to get trying to pull it out of them my approach was to help teach and really more just um, clarify what help they were giving to the bystanders mm-hmm. and then if you kind of give it a structure you know an intention i mean they were doing it already but it didn't have a name and a and a, and a outline to it so i kind of gave it the name of psychological first aid which I, it's not that was research found not yeah. from me and then a structure to it and my hope was that they would begin applying it also to themselves mm-hmm. secondarily it's funny how often people can can provide for others but don't see the value of then. I tell my tennis players all the time, you know, hey, you're so good at, at helping your doubles partner recover from a bad shot. Why don't you do that when you play singles? When you hit a bad shot, say it to yourself. Say it to yourself. Yeah, exactly. No. No. Yeah, yeah. So some of the, I mean, there's some basic tenets to psychological first aid. You guys do this already uh, naturally, but, um, you know, providing hope, um, even though you don't know the outcome, uh, pulling them away from the trauma so that they're not sitting there just bathing their brain in what's going on right. um, giving them something structured to do um, so people feel better when they're doing something you mentioned earlier that you know you talk about well 
<clears throat> excuse me, well, it may not have worked out, you know, the person may not have survived, but here's what we did. You know, you talk about the things that you had control over, and that gives you a feeling of efficacy. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I was doing something. That's very important. Now, when people feel like they, whatever they're doing is is hopeless and not helping, um, it becomes very quickly demoralizing. Um, there was a lot of study after Katrina. You know, anytime there's a mass trauma like that, a lot of the researchers go in and look at, okay, well, how we how can we help people um, through trauma? And so it's a it's a you know it's essentially a testing ground for for. Uh, the study of trauma mm. and so some of the things they found from that uh, were something some of it was very basic um, some of the things that reduced PTSD symptoms in victims of the hurricane one of the um, highest predictors of whether or not they developed PTSD was how quickly they had confirmation that they were going to be able to rebuild their house just hmm. can I get restarted and yeah. when that drug out and that sense of helplessness and things aren't ever going to get back to normal when it prolonged itself, the rates of PTSD went up. Um, that feeling of being out of control and not knowing where where the next step is. Yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. when you're in the field, the first thing you can do when you're, the brain is taking all this trauma in and the amygdala, we've talked about that before, is firing and sending out alarm signals like crazy. Um, the job of essentially the first responders for the bystanders is to calm down that amygdala firing that so you you and there are techniques to calming the brain yeah. and so you walk through an outline of how to do that and um and it can help diminish the bystanders and the and the victims uh onset of ptsd down the road but steve so. you said there was no like training for the most part i mean some but no intense training of how to do that you kind of learn from your peers pretty much i can remember early in my career one of the older heads so to speak when we would have a fire, you'd get lots of false alarms. But when you'd have the one come in, you know it's a fire, and you know they would walk out just cool, calm, and collected to the truck, and we'd be like, just you know, adrenaline rush. And they mm-hmm. go, "You can't do anything if you don't get there safe. You can't do anything if you're in a panic." And over time, you develop that that calmness to where it's not just a you're not freaking out. It's yeah. I can't do anything if we don't get there safe. Mm-hmm. And so that adrenaline yeah. rush you're talking about, yep. you learn to deal with it. Yeah. So they've they've really, even though there may be no formal like outline, they've learned through the years uh, how to navigate that. And there's probably some uh, unlabeled and unspoken processes. You know, and some mentoring probably from yeah, the older guys. It, well, exactly. Yeah. And what you said just resonated with me when I was in uh, medical school. You know, when we were called called a code in the hospital, and you got to respond to someone. Um, I can remember one of the older residents, you know, was running to the code. And he said, you know, if you get there all out of breath, you're not going to be able to, and all excited, you're not going to be very helpful. So just relax. Let's get there. But, you know, keep it, keep your composure. Yeah. Same kind of thing. I mean, he was mentoring, like, you know, here's how you approach this, uh, you know, end of life situation. It's life threatening, but you, you know, you've got, you're the one that has to keep your head cool because um, you're the one that's, you know, um, mediating things. So what you guys do to me is is tremendous and yeah. very unsung. Well, thank you. Uh, very underappreciated, honestly. Do you think so? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say thanks for your service. I mean, I know it's a job. I know you get paid millions of dollars to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can't you tell? Yeah, your contract's similar to Devontae Freeman at, <laughs> yeah. at, at, the, at the Falcons, right? Millions of dollars. 
over time. over I didn't want you to see my right. Maserati. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, but seriously, I mean, even though it is a job that you get compensated for, it's not a job that many people can do or are willing to do. So yeah. it's a very important thing. So thanks for what you do. Well, thank you. Yeah, no yeah. question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, cool. Let's take a quick break. We'll reset for a little bit. We have another guest coming up. That's right. Next segment. We're here in the Red Diamond Coffee and Tea Studios. And of course, we're hanging out with Dr. Mark Westfall talking about trauma man that was such an interesting um segment there with steve hicks really enjoyed that yeah great guy too I mean, yeah just really uh you have to say that because he's still sitting here he's still sitting here yeah right. we'll see what you say after yeah. uh but now moving on more to the psychology part of this and we have a psychologist here with us don't we yeah dr lauren dan lauren welcome good to be here uh lauren and i go back we worked together in the same group for a few years and uh we have a lot of patients in common lauren does a lot of work in uh trauma um, and I do a fair amount as well, and so we uh, share a lot of patients. He does the 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 uh, counseling, psychological approach, and and I tend to do more of the medication approach. But th- so we're when a good you, team. When you say this, like, what typically are the patients? What is the typical drama or sorry trauma that they've dealt with? Great question. I'm gonna let Lauren take off with that. So what what from the type of trauma patients you work with? What would you say is the most common? Well, the most common of the patients that I see uh, involves childhood abuse, often by parents. Could be others, siblings, but usually uh, a family member. Usually a family member. Physical, sexual, both, all of the above. Both, yeah. 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 And uh, so, so most of my uh, clients who have PTSD have what we often referred to as complex PTSD because when someone has multiple episodes of trauma, that uh, leads to a more severe condition. And another complication, of course, is if the trauma is perpetrated by another human being, Mm. then the PTSD is going to be more severe than if trauma uh, occurs uh, as an accident or as a uh, as they say, an act of God, such as a uh, a weather event like a tornado or flood. And I wonder if that's <clears throat> heightened even more if it's perpetrated by a human being who you, in theory, should be able to trust. For example, if you're a soldier and you have trauma, you know, at the hands of another human being, that's one thing. But it's different if it's supposed to be a caretaker. Yes, in fact, that's an excellent point. And the research tells us that the uh, the closer the relationship of the human being who perpetrates the trauma no. to the person who's traumatized, uh, the more severe the PTSD is going to be. So, of course, one can uh, develop PTSD when traumatized by a total stranger, but the closer that relationship, and as you said, when it's a caretaker, especially yeah. a parent, that's uh, when it's most severe. Right. Hmm. Another aspect of that is uh, when it occurs. So, you know, during the brain's development, when you're in childhood and developing your connections and and attachments to mm-hmm. love objects other humans and it happens in that scenario it not only is it someone close and who's supposed to love you but it's also really warping your sense of development because mm-hmm. now you don't it's difficult to conceive of what a close relationship is yeah you know you're, yeah. you're it's really a a multi-whammy. It is uh, complex. It is right. complex. So, yeah, yeah, the younger, the as, as Mark's pointing out, the younger the person is when traumatized, then, uh, again, that's going to also influence the severity of the PTSD that ensues from the traumatic event. 
It makes it tougher to deal with because a lot of times the memories are kind of, you know, stored away, I guess, as opposed to you're going to have to find out because maybe they don't remember exactly, right? That's a fascinating question, too. Yes, and that, that can happen uh, with uh, with more severe trauma. And it's especially in, I can just speak uh, anecdotally from my experience with clients, if, uh, if a child is sexually abused, mm-hmm. often there's... Uh, uh, aspects of the memories that uh, that are repressed, and and in therapy, just by virtue of the fact that the individuals discussing uh, trauma, uh, eventually people uh, tend to remember more if there is repressed material. Right. You know, I'm kind of curious to bridge back to what we sort of talked to uh, you know about with Steve. I, I'm a humanist. I have a really high opinion of, of people. Like, I'm real excited about people. But also, I worked for 11 years in a domestic violence you know, agency and in the sexual assault prevention field. And so I also have, like, a pretty healthy sort of level of cynicism about humanity. I'm curious to know the work that you do. How do you, how do you feel like it affects you to hear on such a regular basis about people being just really awful? That's a well, great question. Yeah, that is a great question. <laughs> I think it affected me more when I was new to the work. Yeah. And it took me some time to uh, grow accustomed to hearing the stories and also to, to find some balance uh, for myself with respect to uh, my boundaries with clients mm-hmm. and uh, to do the kind of work that I do. Of course, you have to be an empathic person to be a effective uh, but uh, there's such a thing as excessive empathy that can actually get in the way of what the therapist is trying to accomplish and uh, and then when on those occasions when I found myself affected then uh, I would usually talk to a colleague yeah and uh, that often was helpful you know, it's funny. I read an article not long ago uh, that talked about the same issue with empathy related to social justice causes. That once again, you it's great to feel for other people, but sometimes if you get too sucked into, and I think we've talked about that before on the show, if you get too sucked in and too empathetic, it can stand in the way of, of actually being effective if you get too drawn into it. Yeah. It's something you, I, I tell patients, you know, who are very empathetic and sometimes get in relationships where there's difficulty with boundaries is that um, you know, empathy is a is a um, a great skill and a tool, but you have to learn to manage it. Right. Um, and uh, you know, give. I often try to help give patients permission to manage their empathy because people who are really empathic have trouble withholding, in their view, what they feel like is withholding sometimes when they don't act on their empathy all the time. And so, part of what I try to do f- to help people not continue to get traumatized. Uh, by being over empathic is to it's, it's something you have to manage you have to kind of it's like it's like taming a, a wild mustang you, you you have to put you know uh, a harness on it you know a bridle yeah. you have to, to and also I think uh, another factor that helped me personally was that in time over the years gaining experience there's some commonalities across clients who have PTSD in terms of their healing process and uh I could anticipate um, generally what would un- ensue from the therapy, and so um, so I knew as long as they were willing to uh, 
to engage in the therapy that uh, they would make progress and feel better. And also uh, conveying that to clients sometimes helped give them some hope and encouragement. So I think that conviction uh, was also uh, helping protect me from burnout. Right, right, yeah. Let's take our uh, last break of the evening. We're hanging out with Dr. Mark Westfall, also psychologist Lauren Dan. Lauren spelled how? L O R N E, same spelling as Lauren Michael. Oh, Lauren. Lauren. Uh-huh. Lauren. Yeah. There we had it's a big discussion. Green. Yeah, we had a big discussion right. on the morning show. Still knows him. The other day, of uh, there were some female listeners, Lauren with an E N, and they were like, "Yeah, we get that's hmm. confusing because usually the male." I thought that anyway. Yeah. Lauren, Lauren. That's way cooler. Yeah. It's a place name in Scotland. Oh, cool. We'll yeah, I didn't know that. So, How about that? Lorne. And uh, see if it's still here as well, in case we want to pull him in for the last segment. And now we've been hanging out with Dr. Mark Westfall, talking about trauma and trauma um, on the brain, PTSD. And Steve Hicks was here, who is a paramedic firefighter in one of the over-the-mountain communities. And that was such an interesting conversation. Still talking kind of off there with him. And Dr. Lorne Dan, psychologist, joins us uh, for this last segment here today. So, yeah, I wanted to touch base real quick on something Reed brought up last time about kind of how do you deal with the the despicable side of mankind mm-hmm. and what they yeah. do. And I would say dealing with trauma patients, for me, uh, one of the things that stands out is I am constantly amazed, and I know Lauren will back this up, at people's ability to survive and thrive in spite of horrific things yeah. and so to me it was initially kind of took me aback to see all this trauma going on and I had to kind of process that but what has really made me interested in it more and more is watching people navigate through it themselves and this the human spirit is just amazing and so to me that's what shines I don't let the the negativity of the perpetrators uh, override or cloud the horizon i look at the the brightness of the patients and and uh, the the light that's just emanating from them so yeah. to me that's how I, how you deal with it can i add something to yeah that? sure go I, for it i think it's also useful to bear in mind that at least some of those despicable people that you speak of have been traumatized themselves yeah, right. one there. and yep. and their their true core selves are not the despicable people that we see from their behavior, but rather an internalization of identifying with their perpetrators in order to survive. And of course, we we hear about this commonly, especially in in uh, certain uh, nations uh, where there's uh, there are a lot of children who are recruited to uh, become fighters and mm-hmm. killers. And uh, and that phenomenon is uh, is going to uh, occur with those kids. You know, my favorite yeah. author is Kurt Vonnegut, and one time recently I read something where he said that uh, uh, someone said, "Hey, I like your book so much because none of them have any villains." And and sure enough, if you stop and think about it, he doesn't he doesn't write bad people. He has people who do bad things, right. but he doesn't write them. He doesn't vilify them. He treats them like human beings, and kind of explains like, "Here's why he did that bad thing." an interesting thing to think yeah. about yeah all right in the min- few minutes we have left i wanted lauren to touch base on a, a process of therapy for patients who've been through trauma called emdr um it's fascinating and i wish we had more time to go into it but with the time we have left i think if lauren can kind of give us an overview of what that is 
Um, uh, EMDR? EMDR. Yes, that acronym stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And just briefly, uh, to uh, introduce you to EMDR, I'll uh, mention that this uh, the phenomenon uh, that uh, led to the development of this therapy method was really discovered by chance. Most psychotherapies are developed from psychological theory. But uh, Francine Shapiro, who developed EMDR, literally was out for a walk in a park one day, and she uh, uh, started to reflect on a very disturbing earlier event in her life, and she became upset. And it just so happens that she had uh, a reflexive reaction of her eyes moving back and forth very quickly, saccadic eye movements. Uh, And after that happened, she noticed feeling some relief from the distress she experienced by uh, reflecting on this very disturbing uh, earlier event in her life and wondered fortunately whether there was any connection between the eye movements and the emotional relief that she experienced and so she played around with this idea and believed that indeed there was a connection so she did some research and her initial research participants all were people with post-traumatic stress disorder. They were Vietnam War combat veterans and uh, women who had post-traumatic stress disorder from having been raped. Mm -hmm. And what she did initially with uh, this procedure and with her research participants, she would have them think about their traumatic memories. And doing that, of course, will provoke flashbacks and other PTSD symptoms. And while they thought about her tr- their traumatic memories, she would sit near them and move her hand back and forth and have uh, the uh, research participant track her fingers to help generate the eye movements and do that for a short while, then pause, take a break, and, and Francine Shapiro would ask the participant to describe what they experienced while they were moving their eyes back and forth. And in describing what they experienced, that could include thoughts or ideas, uh, emotions, physical sensations, uh, a combination of those things. It could be other memories. And these are all components of of memories, physical sensations, thoughts, ideas, the sequence of events that constitute the uh, uh, trauma, as well as physical sensations. All of these components of memories can crop up when someone has a flashback. And And so she went back and forth in this sort of way, having them move their eyes back and forth for a while, then pausing and talking about uh, what came up during that last round of eye movements. And sure enough, she found that this procedure helped to desensitize clients to the traumatic memory so that they could remember it, reflect on it, without feeling like they were re-experiencing it. And so she called her method eye movement desensitization. But over time, she discovered that other changes occurred and that people were getting a fresher, healthier perspective on their situations, thinking differently about their situations, which could be thinking differently about themselves as well as other people, such as you were talking about perpetrators. And that uh, experience of childhood abuse leads people often to think no one can be trusted. They'll hurt you. And after going through this procedure, people spontaneously started to say such things as well. I know I can't trust everybody, but that doesn't mean I cannot trust anyone. So they were changing some of their thoughts in ways that would uh, be similar to what we'd expect with cognitive behavioral therapy, 
but cognitive behavioral therapy was not being implemented. This was happening spontaneously without the specific therapeutic procedures being applied during the therapy sessions and the homework assignments that clients are are uh, expected to do between therapy sessions with cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's why she renamed her method uh, from eye movement desensitization to eye movement desensitization and reprocessing because it was clear that they, the clients were, were reprocessing those memories. There's active learning, of course, that goes on with memory processing, but there's also a change in the type of memory that happens. And so, for example, if, uh, if you see a dog that's a breed of dog when you're walking in the park, uh, a breed of dog you've never seen before, that's new information for you. And initially after that experience, the memory is what we refer to as episodic memory, memory for the specific episode. So what the dog looked like, what flowers you saw in the park, what fragrances you smelled, what the weather was like, etc. All those details that tend to fade very quickly, just like you don't remember what you had for breakfast a couple days ago unless right. you have the same thing every morning. And so, so that memory, when it gets processed, is transformed into what we call episodic memory, a more conceptual memory, uh, more abstract and conceptual memory, where that new information about a dog that you've just learned gets plugged into all the other information that you have in your so-called memory banks, and your concept of what constitutes a dog is forever changed. And, uh, and so that processing happens from talking about the experience, thinking about it, and we also think that during the dream stage of sleep, mm. there's some memory processing, and we know there's some learning that goes on during that stage of sleep. So processing goes on there. But if a tornado touched down when you saw that dog, now that's a traumatic memory. So the brain's not processing it. And we think then that EMDR is mimicking what the brain naturally does with non-traumatic memories, particularly during the dream stage of sleep, which is the rapid eye movement sleep. And so, um, uh, so we think that you know, with, with that episodic memory that doesn't get processed, it feels very present with you, the event. So you can re-experience those physical sensations and thoughts and, and emotions. And that's what a flashback yeah is about. Steve, did you catch all that? I, <laughs> so, I was just thinking the whole time, like, I can't wait to go back and listen to the podcast six times. I feel like with two so minutes think, left in the show, you've given out. me about but two we, hours worth of questions yeah. I wish I could now ask. We think the, yeah. the, the therapy is helping to process that memory so it doesn't feel like it's happening yeah. now. That's no. what PT is. Yeah. PT That's is fascinating. About it feels memory. alive. Yeah. And, and transforming it back into what would be more of a natural memory process. Because yeah. when trauma happens, it changes the way your brain remembers something. We can get into that later, but that's essentially the thing is it's trying to de-traumatize the memory and make it a little bit more of a routine memory. And what in the world that has to do with your eyes moving? Unfortunately, we well, don't have so time to no cover. No one knows yeah, exactly. I know, yeah. Yeah. We're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> all we know is right. it works. It works. <laughs> it works. Um, all right, do like I'm going to do and go back and hear all of this under the podcast. <laughs> Let's think on it. You can do that. It usually comes out a week or so after we uh, do these live here on Birmingham Mountain Radio. So, man, thanks so much to all of our guests tonight. Of course, uh, Dr. Lauren, Dan, Dr. Mark Westfall, Steve Hicks, Dr. Steve Hicks. Let's go to say Why not? Throw it in there. Yeah. Tonight. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com, or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter, at Lockamy Brothers.